there and welcome to the Secrets of Organ Playing podcast. I'm your host, Vidas Pinkavichus. Welcome to Secrets of Organ Playing podcast number 118. This is Sunday, October 29, 2017. And today's guest is an American organist, Angela Craft Cross. And she is visiting Vilnius uh, with the San Francisco choir, right? And we will talk about her uh, practice ex- experiences, about the challenges, about all those things that we both uh, love and enjoy. So uh, let's welcome to the show Angela, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much, Vitas, for having us. Um, we are here on this trip because of the Viva La Musica Choir mm-hmm. coming from the peninsula just south of San Francisco. And we are doing a tour of the Baltic states, and we are so happy to be here. Wonderful. I just uh, showed the organ for you yesterday, right? And you had this rainy afternoon yesterday in Vilnius. How do you like Vilnius so far? Actually, we love Vilnius. We love Old Town, and we especially love this instrument. It's you have such a wonderful organ here. You you spent a few a few hours right here. We did. And uh, what did you play yesterday here? Besides um, Bach, <laughs> G major, Prelude, and Fugue. I worked on the Bach Prelude and Fugue in G major. I worked on um, some Brahms, mm-hmm. um, the. Uh, Herzlich tut mich erfreuen and schmücke dich, and the Prelude and Fugue in G minor. Yes. And also worked on uh, the finale from Mendelssohn's Sonata One. Yeah, Mendelssohn and Brahms uh, are your uh, very uh, favorites, right? Because you have recorded uh, yeah. a couple of CDs. Uh, yeah. One CDs, uh, CD is with almost entire works, organ works uh, by Felix Mendelssohn, and another CD is from Buxtehude to to Brahms, right? The entire Germanic tradition. One thing that's fascinating about that to me is that one of the things I learned along the line was that we we think of the early German Romantic composers such as Mendelssohn and Brahms and Schumann as being in a totally, it's like when you study music history, there's like the Baroque period, and then there's the Romantic period, and it's almost like there's this clean-cut division between them. But actually, it's music history is a long continuum, and it's very interesting to me that the early Romantic composers especially the Germanic ones, inherited the organs that the same, that the German Baroque composers, like especially, well, Buxtehude, Bach, they, they were writing for the very same instruments. So it's fascinating to me that you can have a continuum, and I, I recorded the 200 years in the Germanic tradition to show that on a Germanic instrument that you can play all the way from Buxtehude and Böhm all the way through until Brahms, and, and it all fits very, very nicely. Wonderful, Angela. What instruments did you choose to record those CDs on? Well, the the 200 years in the Germanic tradition, um, Buxtehude to Brahms, I did that on the von Beckerath organ at um, Eglise Americaine, or the American Church in Paris. 
Um, and that is not exactly a historic instrument, but it is a German um, tracker action organ that's um, it, it's, it's sort of conceived in the Baroque tradition. Um, my Mendelssohn album is a two-CD set, and it is recorded on the historic 1801 um, George England organ that's in London. It's right behind the Bank of England. It's, it's a church called St. Margaret's Lothbury. And the cool thing about this instrument is that there is a... It's a part of the church's oral tradition that Mendelssohn came and visited that organ and played on it. He didn't perform on it, but he played on that organ. Um, his friend uh, um, Samuel Wesley you know, brought him yeah. to, to that organ. Now that organ has had a number of changes back and forth over time, but it has been restored in its original condition. Mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking, because Mendelssohn has a lot of English uh, connection. And I've, if I remember correctly, when he visited England uh, at one point, uh, he uh, advised uh, to expand, I think, pedal boards, right? Because he wanted to play uh, organ works of Bach, too. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think later on, uh, English organ developed more extensive pedal board suitable for all kinds of organ music. It's interesting because I have a very dear friend who's a British organist, uh, Jonathan Melling, and Jonathan said something to me once that totally took me by surprise. He said, I always thought that Mendelssohn was a British organist. And in, Amer not... in America, we always think of Mendelssohn as definitely being German, and most of Mendelssohn's career obviously was in mm -hmm. Leipzig. It was the same town that Bach ended up in. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, it turns out that in Mendelssohn's lifetime, he gave a total of one organ recital in Germany, which was at St. Thomas Kirche in Leipzig, where yeah. Bach was. But he gave many, many, many organ recitals in the British Isles. He even played for Queen Victoria, and he was just, he was like a rock star yeah. on the organ in Britain. So he, Jonathan's right, he, he was a British organist. <laughs> And the other interesting thing is if you look at Mendelssohn's organ scores, any time the pedal becomes the least bit virtuosic, the left hand drops out. And that's because at, during the early 1800s, organs in England were not dependable to have a good pedal board. And he never knew for any given organ whether it would have a, a workable pedal board, a good pedal board, let alone one that could handle the virtuoso passages that he would like it to have. So he always made it so in his work so that if he needed to, he could substitute the left hand for the pedal. And I find that's very interesting. You look all the way through his book, and every time the, the pedal gets the least bit rambunctious, the left hand drops out totally. I see. <laughs> so left hand and pedal coordination was uh, still an issue. Yeah. <laughs> like for today's organist, a lot of people cannot really play left hand and pedals uh, at the same time, different mel mm -hmm. melodies, um, because they're so used with, on the, to playing piano music, right? And then when they start to play the organ, and left hand uh, becomes not the, the lowest step, but mm -hmm. the middle step, and that's complicated. 
I always say that that's one of the biggest adjustments you have to make when you're moving from like either harpsichord or piano to organ is that you have to learn how to incorporate your feet as well and it's almost like when you think about playing the piano it's like you have two halves of your brain and you have one side that I am right hand, I am treble, I am left hand, I am bass and when you then switch to organ all of a sudden the left hand is no longer the bass and then you have two more limbs, you have a right foot and a left foot that have to get involved and it's interesting to me as a teacher as well that I find that if young people can start organ when they are 10, 11, 12, 13, it is so much easier for them to incorporate their feet into the entire picture, and they are very fast learners. And people that come to organ as adults, sometimes it's a bigger struggle to get mm -hmm. the feet to incorporate. And I think that the young mind is more flexible and is able to incorporate it more easily. I think you're right, and, and with age we, we do gain some different uh, things, right? Our mentality advances uh, with age. We can process information perhaps um, on a more deeper level than, than teenagers, for example. Mm -hmm. So, And our motivation might be better than teenagers, right? We can practice mm -hmm. um, with more focused mind and longer periods of time, and, uh, st you know, without... Uh, without any uh, sort of gratification feeling, instant gratification mm -hmm. that teenagers normally uh, wish for. Yeah, more stick-to-itiveness. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, we also want to succeed and, and uh, play well, but we can wait until this uh, result shows up a few months later. Right? I think that's true. Excellent. So, Angela, you mentioned uh, your interest uh, into ger Germanic tradition. When did it all start? Uh, can you go back in time? Maybe let's talk about uh, the, uh, the first experience with the organ. How did you first fell in love with, with it, this instrument? You know, it's interesting. I, I think it was just very, very good luck, serendipity. Mm. Um, my very first piano teacher was a man named S. Leslie Grow, and he actually was the organist at the church that I'm now the organist at, the Congregational Church of San Mateo. And, but I didn't know that when I was seven years old and studying piano with him, and the first three years of piano went very well. And he came to my parents and said, do you think Angela would like to study the organ too? And so... You know, you're 10 years old, and your parents say, do you want to study the organ? You say, sure. Why not? <laughs> sure. Sounds like fun to me. And and it's interesting. The, the first year or two of organ, there there is a there's a there's an awkward time where it's just hard to put it all together. But somehow you you just know that it's going to be fun when it's finished. And 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 so I. I studied organ all the way through high school, and and I gave several recitals when I was in high school, and went through a lot of wonderful organ literature. I was very fortunate because Mr. Grow had been a scholarship student of Marcel Dupre in France, and he had a tremendous love for French Romantic, and 
and it was very contagious, and I caught that bug very early and fell in love with the French Romantic period. But I also love Bach, too, and I love Mendelssohn, and I love all those composers. And it's interesting, because I then did my um, organ in college. I was an organ major at Oberlin College, and they have, have had a wonderful organ program for many, many years. And, and I learned a lot about tracker action instruments and historical perspective and playing authentically. And after that, my whole life took another turn, and I ended up going to medical school and becoming an ophthalmologist, eye surgeon. And, and it was actually during those years that I got my master's in piano, um, but after I finished my master's in piano, I was yearning to do more education, and there wasn't an obvious way for an eye surgeon who's working close to full time to be able to do a doctorate in America because there's just so many hours in the day. And I knew that I wanted to study overseas, and I, I won't go into the long story, but I was able to find Louis Robillard in Lyon, France, and I had heard him play when I was at Oberlin, and I was absolutely just, it was a breathtaking performance. I had never heard an organ sound like that before. And we tracked him down in Lyon, France, in summer of 1994. And I went up and talked to him and said, would you ever take a short-term American student? And he said, yes. He said, we. Oui. And I was just so surprised. And... So in January of 1996, I, we spent, Robert and I spent a whole month in Lyon, France, studying intensively there, practicing five hours a day and taking four to five 90-minute lessons a week. And it was a very intensive time, for, and it was amazing. I kept telling Louis Robillard, I feel like I've died and gone to heaven because... American organs are nice. I love them very much. But the, between the acoustics and playing on an authentic Cavalier Cole instrument and playing the music that I had fallen in love with many years earlier, it was like a match made in heaven, and it was, it was just an amazing experience. So after that, I came back every two years and tried to do little study trips with, with Monsieur Robillard, and he... Well, he's like my organ father now. I, I owe a huge debt of gratitude to him. Wonderful. So it's a long story, right? And uh, Robert, uh, uh, your husband, is also sitting next to us, but patiently waiting for his turn, uh, because uh, he will be uh, turning pages and assisting pulling the stops tonight, right, at this concert for yes. you. And uh, he also records your performances and, and makes them into CDs, right? Yes. So wonderful, um, basically, tandem, right, team of, of uh, um, talent and skill to put everything together and to further the mm -hmm. organ art and share it with the world. Yes. So, Robert, uh, what organ music, what type of organ music do you like? Oh, like music. That's like, which kind of art do you like? It's, it's Angela picks projects to do, like um, a Bach project or Mendelssohn project. Also French. Uh, she's, she's learned to, to specialize in a lot of French. And 
Um, our last CD that I recorded uh, with her was uh, on the Cavaille uh, Cole organ in Lyon at Vidor's organ. It was Vidor's uh, father, the famous Vidor, and his father actually um, started Vidor. He was born in Lyon um, there, and we had an opportunity to record. Um, we, we recorded a two-CD set of a few of his symphonies, later symphonies, and it was wonderful to actually feel the sense of putting together Vidor as Vidor would have heard it, because he grew up on that organ, then he went to Paris. Um, but he, he um, one of the pieces that we did, of course, was the Fifth Symphony. And when you listen to the Fifth Symphony on the organ, you know, uh, that Vidor, um, Charles-Marie Vidor, actually um, got to um, premiere at his father's organ in Lyon, it was a wonderful feeling that you are in history. So recording things like that, it was a joy, it was, it was wonderful. So just being with Angela and watching her grow and, and be excited about what she does makes me excited. And, you know, I think the audiences that listen to the CDs also feel that and we get a lot of good comments. So. Wonderful, wonderful, Robert. Do you play the organ yourself too? Uh, no, no. I um, I teach art and art history, but uh, and aesthetics. But I don't um, play um, the instrument. I, I played piano when I was very young, uh -huh. but um, I never did you, what Angela did. But you could, right? You could uh, study for fun, for your like a hobby. Because nowadays, what I experience uh, uh, is that a lot of people, uh, for example, when they retire, they they have more free time and they want to pick up their hobby from the early days, or the instrument from the early days, which they didn't have time for for decades, mm -hmm. when they were active in another field like ophthalmology, right? Or, or mm -hmm. something else, uh, or law, or, um, or uh, engineering, or physics. So I have a lot of students like that from all over the world, especially from America, because uh, people understand that <clears throat> when you retire, you have to find something to do with your free time, right? And something, uh, mm -hmm. uh, something useful. Do you remember, Angela, uh, when you first started playing the organ? What was the first piece that you played, tried to play on this instrument? The first organ composition, or was it a hymn, maybe, or a piano arrangement, or something like that? I remember the first time I actually tried to play the organ at all. It was McDowell's To a Wild Rose. But in the in the actual organ literature, I started with the Eight Little Preludes and Fugues of Bach. Oh, good. We all start. <laughs> well, that's, that's what I start when I teach, too. Mm -hmm. I, <laughs> it's a good collection, right? Very systematic and methodical. Well, the funny thing is it's, it, there, there's, even a, there's, there's always been a question of whether Bach really wrote those or not. And, it, and it's interesting because they're not as Baroque, they're actually more classical era, mm -hmm. the way they're put together. So maybe a student of Bach, like Krebs? Yeah, I think that's what's... Some people they agree just... about Johann Ludwig Krebs' mm -hmm. author, authorship. Mm, but at any rate, it's Bach school, right? Basically, mm -hmm. the Bach circle. 
it was influenced. And then Purcell trumpet voluntaries, oh. those were early on. Yeah. What was challenging for you then? Putting every everything together or uh, or playing pedals maybe? You or know, it's funny. I always I always look back on really early early organ as it, it it goes through an awkward phase. There's a point where for starters you don't have your full adult height yet, so you're sitting on the bench and you have your neck creaned way up and you're looking at the music on the music rack and then you lower your head and you look at where your hands are and then you look way down at your feet and then you careen your neck way back up again and it seemed like an endless process trying to keep track of where the music was where your hands were and where your feet are a very interesting perspective I also sometimes struggled with this at first but then later some somebody of my somebody told me to uh, sit further and uh, look at the bigger picture like like um, to see entire page maybe mm-hmm. and to see uh, your perif- with peripheral vision and then uh, maybe you orient yourself better on the keyboards and pedals as well i try not to look at, at, at the feet when playing and try to advise students not to look as mm-hmm. well but um, it's sometimes unavoidable especially on on unfamiliar instruments mm-hmm. Or when you improvise sometimes, when you want to make make up melodies that didn't exist before. And sometimes you you improvise unexpected passages. You expect to go right and your feet goes down, left. Mm-hmm. And then you have to look, look. Sometimes you hit the wrong note. And sometimes this uh, wrong note becomes the right note because it catapults you to the mm-hmm. new, Into a different, different chord. chord so, Angela, um, <clears throat> you overcame this cha- these challenges, right? Uh, what was the process for you to master those intricate uh, three, four, or even five parts of organ playing? I think one thing, that back in those years, reading music was a painful process. I really didn't like reading music. And so as soon as I could decode the thing and figure out what it was, I memorized it. And then it was so much easier. And then I didn't have to look up anymore. And it was much more comfortable playing from memory. And it's interesting because I have a few students right now who are doing the same thing, that the the sooner they can get things memorized, the sooner they get airborne and Mm -hmm. it works. Uh, Yeah. I noticed you played from memory. This is wonderful. 541 uh, G major prelude and fugue by Bach, almost without any hiccups and, uh, and no. uh, well, any adjustments. Well, I learned that when I was in high school, so I was a teenager. teenager so, yeah. so it's a it's an old friend that old one. Old friend, yeah. You, you keep it fresh from time to time. You repeat it. Keep it in, uh, they hear yeah. it in church periodically. Yeah. She she has a few that she can. Uh-huh. Like. What are your some of your favorites that you could uh, you know come back over and over? Again. Well, in Bach, I love the, the Prelude and Fugue in G major and the Fantasy and Fugue in G minor. Mm-hmm. I love the Wedge, Prelude and Fugue. That's a tricky piece. Um, I also love the Pasacallian Fugue in C minor. Mm-hmm. Um, I, have, I have so many Bach pieces mm-hmm. that I love. Um, and Mendelssohn, I have several sonatas that I especially love. Mm-hmm. And, and that was sort of what helped me decide to learn 
you know, the rest of that book to, to put together a CD, but I love the sonatas one, three, four, and six for starters. Do you usually practice at the home or at church? What do you? Practice? My favorite place to practice is at church. church. And there's a second church where I also teach that has a tracker action instrument, and I enjoy practicing there as well. It's only 12 minutes from home, so it's. Do you have an, an instrument at home too? I have a small electronic instrument. Mm -hmm. uh, does Robert enjoy the sounds of the electronic instrument at home? Um, it's actually, it's not so much, the electronic instrument, of course, is not like your wonderful organ here. Um, it's, it's electronic. And, but what I have learned to listen to is the way Angela will actually, it's, it's a joy to actually listen to her practice. She'll pick up a brand new piece, and even on the first hour that she's with a brand new piece, it's not painful to listen to. She doesn't do one measure at a time. She doesn't learn it that way. She plays it as a bigger thought, a bigger mm -hmm. piece. And so listening to her, no matter what organ it's on, and um, she will actually play concerts on, all co she will play concerts on electronic organs. If a church invites her and they have an electronic organ, she will do it because what she feels is the bigger picture. These, this church or wherever she's going, you know, that's their organ. They like their organ. And she says, I will make it sound the best I can, no matter how it's made, how small it is, how big it is. Mm -hmm. And so she, she's learned to do that. So that's what I listen for. And usually even in the, in the most uh, uh, instruments, you can find at least one decent stop, usually four-foot flute. Uh, which could sound uh, very well, and you could play it on it for hours. And, yeah, especially on um, pipe organs. Well, I always think that that organs are like human beings. You know, most of them have strong points, weak points. You know, some of them have more challenges than others. But it's always our job as organists to bring out the best in every organ that we play. And if you f figure out that there are things that don't work as well, then you tend to not use those combinations as much. And you tend to try to make the organ sound the absolute best you can. Mm -hmm. Do you have your favorite um, organ stop combination, for example, that you use uh, uh, on uh, a lot of instruments, if you find them? Or you try to register your pieces in different way every time? I think that it, a lot depends on what we're talking about. Like if we're, we're doing Bach, we're going to be looking for a nice principal chorus sound. If we're doing French Romantic, there's a certain you know, French Romantic sound where you have the reeds on the swell and they're coupled down to the positif and to the, gr the grand org. And you can use the box to make the reeds more prominent or less prominent. And so it... it it's according to what part of history and what country we're working with. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes if you're playing on an organ that perhaps is more Germanic Baroque and you're trying to play French Romantic music on it, that's more of a challenge. But I think what you have is you have in your mind what it would sound like on the Cavaillé organ and you do the best you can to pick stops that would emulate that. Mm -hmm. And, like, for instance, it's possible that, you know, if you're, you know, playing the Vidor Toccata or something like that, 
that, you know, maybe you would have many, many mixtures on a Germanic organ that are available to you, but if it sounds too bright to you, then you, you leave those off. You know, there is the trick that sometimes people do with Germanic uh, or neo-baroque organs uh, built in the Germanic tradition when they want to play French music, symphonic music, uh, romantic music, uh, and not so bright sounds. So then they perhaps play one octave lower if it's possible ah. to adjust the tenor range. So the left hand has to not go lower than the tenor C. And an octave lower would be the the bass C, the, the lowest note mm. on the keyboard. So, of course, we don't use then 16 foot in the manuals, but then playing one octave lower uh, would make it sound like with 16 mm. feet, plus the mixtures also would be one octave lower and not mm -hmm. so bright. So yeah. that's the, the trick with a lot of French toccatas. You can play one octave lower, like Vidor yeah. too, Vidor toccata. Even on a neo-baroque instrument, quite, uh, quite satisfactory. Yeah, I, ha yeah. I hadn't used that trick, but I do tend to pick out, you know, pull on the 16-foot, avoid the mixtures, and even on the swell, if the 4-foot reed is too bright, I will leave that off. Me too, yeah. Sometimes those those are very, very... It depends on the, on the voice, on the reeds, exactly. of course, you have to listen and... Uh, listen for the end result and compare it uh, with the ideal French sound that you have in your memory from the mm -hmm. Lyon times. That's right. right? Mm. Wonderful. So what is challenging to you now, Angela? We talked about your early days. Uh, you didn't mention what was your, who was your uh, organ professor at Oberlin. Who, uh, who oh, I had two different organ professors. I started with Garth Peacock. And then I ended up with William Porter, Bill Porter. Oh, wonderful uh, organ master and fantastic improviser. Yes, and he was especially wonderful with the Baroque music. Mm -hmm. He went on to teach at New England Conservatory mm -hmm. later on. And then I think, I think McGill East, also. Eastman School of Music and later McGill University too. Fantastic person. Yeah, he has had a fantastic career. Mm -hmm. Wonderful teacher. Yeah, especially if you are dealing with early music. Um, he knows so, so many things and how to make it alive and how to create it mm -hmm. from scratch, how to improvise and make it stylistically uh, coherent and uh, convincing. It, it Sometimes it seems like like Buxtehude or Swelling was resurrected in his playing. You know? mm -hmm. Oh, it's is it as this Swelling newly rediscovered piece by Swelling, mm -hmm. or books to who they, What books WV number is this? You know, mm -hmm. no, it's just improvisation. Yeah. So these masters can do that. Yeah. And that's amazing. So Angela, what's your next uh, project? What are you currently working on? Well, I'm sort of between projects right now. Um, having just finished the Vidor project where I recorded uh, symphonies four, five, six, and seven. And for that, for that particular project, um, I had played um, symphonies five and six for many, many years, um, like since I was in my teenage. And symphony four, I had learned a couple of years before because I had a student who suddenly learned it. He, he's a, 
a, a young young genius named Ethan Heyman. He's down at USC now. Um, and so I needed to learn that piece so that I could more fully teach it to him. Um, and I needed to be able to fill out the double CD um, using yet one more. And I sort of studied the other symphonies and decided to go with seven. And I expected that to be um, sort of like a continuation of five and six. And I was so surprised that it was so much more mature. And and that was just a wonderful project learning that. And so I recorded four, five, six, and seven um, at uh, San Francois de Salle. So going f in, in organ from here, I'm thinking about, I have learned Symphony 8, and I'm thinking about resurrecting that. I'm also thinking about maybe looking at Roman and Gautique. Mm -hmm. I haven't... Complete. Sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking along those lines. I'm also thinking about maybe um, finishing learning the first symphony of Vierne and because I already play the second and the third. Oh, so Vierne project would be also on the horizon. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, you were making a mention earlier about what do we do with retirement because I am mostly retired from ophthalmology now. I, I volunteer in a free clinic for people with no medical insurance, but it gives me more time. And actually, what I have been doing more of in the last several years is composition. So working on compositions both for choir and also um, one of my choir directors in a couple of years ago had a gorgeous tenor voice. So I've written several pieces for tenor solo. And then of course I'm also writing pieces for organ as well. And That's right. You mentioned this Exultate Deo uh, piece that you will be performing uh, Yes, that's to, happening this, tonight. Tonight with the San Francisco Choir, you came here together. And um, how can you describe your writing process? Uh, what's uh, happening in your head when you create? It's interesting. It, um, for different things, it works differently. Um, I find that if I'm writing something for singing, if I if I look at a text. If, I, if I'm looking like at a lines of poetry, if I think about them in a quiet space with you know, no distractions, melodies will come to my head as to how I think they should go. And that's very helpful. And then you can harmonize that and decide how to you know, package it. Um, organ, I do best if I can have a storyline because I'm a big believer, like if I'm going to the movies, I like movies that have character development. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and, and to me, that's very, very important. It, it, shows, it shows the transforming power of God mm -hmm. in our lives. And I think that's an underlying theme when I write music. And so if I can come up with a, a viable story that has character development mm -hmm. in it in my mind I could come up with a piece of music that is interesting to listen to do you experience sometimes this uh, like a writer's block or, or composer's block when, when you sit and uh, uh, look at the blank piece of paper or mm -hmm. computer screen I don't know how you create mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you don't know what to write yes absolutely um, it's interesting in composition, I am mostly self-taught. Mm -hmm. 
I never like went to college mm -hmm. to do this. And the first the first time I did any kind of you know rudimentary lessons in composition was when I was working on my master's in piano. And and after I came out of that program, I was playing organ concerts at a church in Ohio that wanted hymn-based music as part of the concert, and I wasn't finding pieces that I wasn't was entirely happy with. So I wrote a piece called uh, Folk Hymn Fantasia on Lord of the Dance, which was a favorite hymn when I was growing up. It was actually written when I was, you know, 10, 11, around that age. And... And that went very well, and I was very happy. And that happened in 1993. And I wasn't able to get another piece off the ground until 1999. So yes, I know all about writer's block. And it was in 2002 that, that we had the disaster of 9-11 in our country. And then our country went to war, and I am very much an anti-war person. And I was very unhappy with the way the world was going towards war. And all of a sudden, I wrote a five-movement symphony called Symphony of Peace. And that's when I realized that I really was a composer, that it wasn't just a fluke. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I started you know, trying to seek out how I could get some help just to learn more how to, how to go about you know, composing, you know, when I wanted to compose something. And I did several long weekends with Pamela Decker okay. down at University of Arizona. She's a long-standing friend, and so I did a few long weekend sort of composition camp with her. Uh, and so she helped me, you know, learn a lot about how as a composer you're a problem solver and you can sit and you can... It's not just the first thing that comes into your mind is the finished composition, but... It's an idea, and then you can work on it, and you can come up with options, and then you can choose what is the best option. And yes. now that I have a little bit of a methodology, that helps get through some of the trickier parts. Pamela, uh, hopefully, will be a guest on this podcast too, uh, when her, um, you know, schedule permits, uh, because she's very active and, and really has a lot of. Yeah, she's a brilliant, brilliant person. Yeah. So wonderful. I hope uh, you will continue to create, to share, and I hope uh, Robert uh, will continue to record and to listen to and enjoy to uh, Angela's uh, playing and practices too, right? Uh, it's really fun to, to listen to, to your wife play, right? Oh, yeah. Robert, uh, I remember uh, my wife, Osha, we sometimes uh, switch places and practice on the same organ. And it's a really enjoyable process to, to sit on the sofa next to the organ and just to listen how she plays, really. And um, Makes you fall in love all over again. That's the idea, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, then, and then, of course, please keep me posted on your future developments and I have a feeling that uh, we'll meet again. I hope so. Thank you. And thank you so much for your wonderful hospitality here. It's a beautiful, beautiful organ. Thank you. My pleasure to share it with you, and uh, I hope your concert will go well tonight. Thank you. If you would like to say hello to Angela and find out more about her and her activities, uh, 
please visit uh, her website at angelacraftcross.com. That's A-N-G-E-L-A-K-R-A-F-T-C-R-O-S-S dot com. Also, because Angela is the founding director and president of San Francisco Peninsula Organ Academy, please visit uh, their website at www.sfpeninsulaorganacademy.org. That's S-F-P-E-N-I-N-S-U-L-A-O-R-G a n a c a d e m y dot o r g if you liked this conversation i encourage you to visit my blog secrets of organ playing at organduo.lt where you will find lots of insights practical advice and training for every area of organ playing you can subscribe to this blog for free to get your daily dose of inspiration and to be the first to know when any of my future podcasts roll out. I hope to help you reach your dreams in organ playing. I'm Vidas Pinkavichus. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you online really soon.